Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Club World Affairs of California. I'm John Zipperer. I'm your host for Week to Week and the Commonwealth Club's Vice President of Media and Editorial. This is not only our latest Week to Week program, it is our 12th anniversary. It's our birthday party program. I know some of you have been with us pretty much that long, so thank you very much. A dozen years ago, we kicked off this program with a noontime program. We had Dr. Larry Gersten and we had Deborah Saunders uh, as our first panelists, and then we were later joined in the program by film critic Michael Fox, who talked about the Oscars, which were just about to happen then as well. Um, I'm thrilled that we've lasted so long, and I'm thrilled with our audience members, uh, both in person, who's, as well as those people who've watched and listened online. I'm thrilled with all of our panelists, and I'm really thrilled with all the politicians who do things like hold press conferences at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping. Um, they give us stuff to talk about. Luckily, even after a dozen years, we have lots to talk about, and we're going to do that tonight. Now, first, you may have noticed one of our panelists is not with us tonight. Deborah Saunders, who was there at the first, from the beginning, um, she's now the Washington columnist for the Las Vegas Review Journal. She was going to join us remotely, and unfortunately, she contacted us earlier today, and she is sick. So she sends her apologies. We send our well wishes, and we will have her back here in the future. In the meantime, I am pleased that our other scheduled panelist is here, Tim Anaya, and he and I are going to have a fun discussion of the current political scene. Those of you who are in the room, please... We'll be collecting some questions, and we'll all work them into our discussion today. So again, Tim Anaya, he's the Vice President of Marketing and Communications for the Pacific Research Institute. You can find him on X at Tim Anaya. So welcome back, Tim. Thank you. So let's start with the big sexy issue, which is, of course, the national presidential race. Um, and actually, Tim, I want to start talking about Nikki Haley, because we've talked about her a number of times on this show. And... Uh, I think people have been kind of figuring, okay, she's going to drop out at this point or drop out at that point. And uh, she's not won a primary yet and is expected to handily lose her home state's primary, but she is doggedly staying in. So what do you make of Nikki Haley's candidacy and what does that tell us about her? Well, usually uh, a presidential campaign is all about numbers, but in two ways. So first, of course, the most important is how many votes do you get? How are you doing in the polls? And the second is money. And really, people's presidential campaigns and how long they last in it are fueled by money. So obviously, she's done pretty well or well enough on the fundraising side of things to keep going a little longer. She just had, within the last few weeks, she had a series of fundraisers throughout California so, um, you know, at, at this point, I, I would imagine there's probably a little bit of pride not wanting to lose your home state by 30 or 40 points. But that seems to be about where she's headed uh, this weekend. Um, I will say it has been interesting since New Hampshire, which was really her shot to win a state. Mm -hmm. And when she lost New Hampshire by double digits, now, you have to ask yourself, OK, well, where and why are you continuing to go? I think a little bit of it is that pride. But if you've noticed, she has kind of thrown caution to the wind. She's been letting her rip the things she's saying. And maybe many people had hoped she would have said earlier in the campaign. Yep. Now she's saying 
Now, that has boosted her a little bit, and so maybe she'll lose on Saturday by 25 points instead of 40 points. Now, after Saturday, the question is, okay, Super Tuesday is week and a half after that. Do you go on to there? There's a lot of debate about that, that Saturday may be her last stand. I think she probably has enough money to pay for the plane and do all of that to to, to get to March 5th. You know, why is she doing it? You know, sometimes it's you're setting yourself up for the next presidential race and to show you went the distance, you saw it through, you put together a good, compelling case, you raised a lot of money. Okay, that's probably some of it. Ronald Reagan running in 1976. Yes, exactly. Um, You know, there's a whole history of presidential candidates. It took them three times or more to to actually get the nomination or do well in, in an election. Um, some of it could be, of course, the famous, the next book, the next gig on CNN. You know, the speaking fees go up when you're a former presidential candidate. I'm sure all of that is at play, too. You know, but the big question is, and that we're confronting right in the debate is, the Trump people will certainly say, you've got to get out. You're dividing the party. We need to move on. Well, I would argue since New Hampshire... The whole GOP race has been kind of like the tree falling in the forest with no one around. So it it hasn't hurt the party at all because there's been very little coverage of it at all. So I think the most important thing, and, and hopefully she has some smart, loyal people around her, is you don't want to be embarrassed. You know, you got to know politics. A lot of it is about timing and being on the right side of timing, being ahead of the curve. Who, who, who stayed in races? After that point, who who has embarrassed themselves, do you think? Well, I mean, you could argue, uh, I think one of the key ones, you know, in, in 1992 when Jerry Brown was running for president, you know, he had his moment and then kind of became the joke candidate and he stayed all the way to the convention. Now, all these years later, right, th- we've probably long forgotten that. And, yeah. and obviously he was able to rehabilitate himself many times over after that, but you could argue, you know, he 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 comes to mind to me as, you know, one of those where he really could have damaged his future in politics, which was ultimately very successful by becoming the butt of the late night joke. The Harold Stassen. Of- the Harold Stassen. Exactly. OK, so back to Nikki Haley, then. Um, I mean, early on, people were kind of you, know, you and for both parties, this kind of goes into the play of, well, maybe they're sticking around because they want to position themselves as a strong enough can, candidate who has enough of a of a constituency within the party that the eventual winner might check select them as a vice presidential candidate. She's burned those bridges. Those boats are sunk in the harbor. I mean, do you agree? I would agree with that. And uh, to add to that point, The um, presidential process, especially for the Republicans, has kind of been gamed a little bit this year because, uh, you know, in 2020 and and afterward, a lot of the Trump people control the state parties. And it's ultimately the state parties who determine, are we going to have a primary or a caucus? You remember last time Melissa was talking about her favorite, the two Nevada primaries, caucuses, right? You know, so... Um, the delegate rules have been changed. So whereas in years past, if you're getting 
40 percent or 35 percent of the vote in some of these states, you might get a chunk of delegates to go to the national convention. California was a state like that. Um, I actually worked on the bill back in the early 2000s when we changed it to winner take all by congressional district for Republicans. So if, say, Nikki Haley won the San Francisco congressional district, she would win three delegates. And if she won the San Mateo congressional district, she'd get three more. We just changed the rules in advance of this convention so that if one candidate gets over 50 percent of the vote statewide, they win all the delegates in California. So I've and and, uh, could dig into that. Why? Who does that help? What does it hurt? What is it trying to prevent or or push along? It was largely a move by the Trump people to kind of thwart competition if competition was you know, going to pick up steam, and especially on Super Tuesday, that's when you can see a lot of dominoes fall for one candidate or the other. So California probably, I think California has about 160 delegates to the national convention. The latest polling I saw, Haley's like in the low 30s and Trump is around high 50s to 60s. So Haley might do better statewide in California than the other Super Tuesday states, but she won't get one delegate out of it. Uh, Deborah Saunders is now with us in person, but in her column today, she writes, uh, it's a good thing for the Republican Party that she, Haley, is sticking around. Uh, Deborah says Haley has a better chance of beating Biden than does Trump, who was, of course, beaten either directly or in his off-year proxies. Uh, have been beaten in almost every election after 2016. Deborah writes, but wait, there's more. Haley won't drag her party's voters through a stew of endless grievances during another election season, unquote. A, do you agree or disagree with that? And then I want to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the polling, virtually every national poll and virtually every state poll in the battleground states Now, because Biden, and we'll get to Biden in a bit, is not in a great standing right now, both Trump and Haley lead Biden in most every state and nationally. But Trump narrowly leads Biden, a point or two, maybe as many as four points in some of these key states. Haley in some of these states leads Biden by 15 points or more. So, I mean, it literally would be a landslide if Haley were the Republican nominee, but it's Always the tension right in a party primary. It's heads over hearts. And this is one where you're seeing, for whatever reason, what she's selling has not connected to the Republican base, even though, you know, I'm a numbers guy, right? I work at a think tank. All we deal with is data. I see 19 points, 15 points ahead. Well, you know, uh, I, I haven't talked to any of my friends to see well, gee, here's some data here. It seems pretty clear to me. But clearly, you know, when the postmortem is written, it will be very interesting to see the inside thinking and why they did what they did and why they did what they did didn't work. Personally, if I had lost Nevada by double digits to a no none of the above, I, I would be in my hotel room sobbing and they would like have to drag me away. That's the bit right about you don't want to be embarrassed. You don't want to be embarrassed. On the other hand, I suspect a fair number of people are looking at her and saying, she's tough. She is tough. She is tough. And when you think of the world challenges, when you think of the challenges in Congress, right? 
how different it would be if she had the bully pulpit yeah. versus certainly the current occupant of the White House, but also the last occupant of the White House, too. Let's talk about the last occupant, and then we'll get to the current person. Um, Trump has a few legal issues, and some of them have kind of... The birds are coming home to roost, as I say. Um, there's the $350 million thing, which largely to him... I mean, it's a distraction, but it's a, it's a derailing distraction. I mean, he is now... Yeah, he His lawyers attempted to try to delay the enforcement of this, if I'm reading this correctly, for at least another month. And the judge came back and said, no, you haven't explained why. Um, do you think this is something that is a potential, not a hurdle to him winning nominations and, and elections, but um, a serious distraction from what he wants to talk about and wants to do? Or is this what he wants? Because this is him as a victim. Well, first, I just wanted to I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. We have a special prize tonight for the trivia contest winner. You're going to win a pair of Trump sneakers. Okay. Do with them what you will. Solid gold. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I think certainly... On the legal side of things, I would bifurcate the two different cases, the civil cases and the criminal cases. Mm -hmm. The civil cases couldn't be more of a disaster legally. The man's going to lose his shirt. He obviously does not have the A-team legal team around him. And you can see, right, as a client, he's not, he doesn't listen to what his lawyers tell him, right? But... Because of the judgments, right, he's been able to spin that in the narrative he's trying to paint, right, of I'm a victim, they're out to get me, it's a witch hunt. And when we get into Rana in a little bit, well, maybe they might pick up the check for uh, for some of his uh, legal troubles. So the um, the civil cases may not be a net negative politically. Now, the criminal cases, we've seen the polling. And the polling shows if Donald Trump is convicted of a crime before the election, um, he will lose a modest to significant portion of the vote, especially in the key states, enough that would lose him votes. And they've also asked the Haley voters, what would you do if um, he is convicted of a federal crime? Because remember, both party nominees need to get 90 to 95 percent of their party's vote in the general election to have a chance. So if you're losing 10 percent or more of your party's vote in the general election, you're probably not going to win. And the election, you know, we're looking at is probably going to be decided by under 500,000 votes in three or four states. That's all you need. So that's a real political and legal challenge for him. And so you're seeing exactly what you talked about. It's delay, delay, delay. Mm -hmm. It's throw up, you know, look here, here's a challenge. And the whole goal is to get this delayed until after the election. Now, we'll see, right? You've got, what, three or four criminal cases. It's different judges. It's different circumstances. It's different venues. Um, if he can successfully get them all delayed till after the election, that is probably the biggest boost he could have in the entire campaign. Um so, you know, now 
Does he have the A-team legal team for his criminal cases? Well, no. So are these judges showing patience? Some are showing more patience than others. Are the prosecutors, are they kind of handing him things on a silver platter that he can use? Like the Fannie Willis thing, my goodness, that is that is exactly what he lives for, something like that. And to make the whole thing, don't worry about me, what about this, right? And the whole show is about that, and everything on television is about that. So, you know, if his even B or C list legal team can get this pushed out until after the election, you know, that's a huge boost for him. So we'll see. We we don't know. And it only takes one conviction, right, for for this to happen. So and it's unclear, you know, sitting here watching them, right, is one case going better than the others? The Georgia case does not seem to be going well. And then, you know, we're going to have the the Supreme Court hearing coming up. That appears to be the the case with the biggest head of steam going down the track. That's on which that the that's the January 6th case. The document case in Florida, that seems to be moving at kind of a snail's pace. From what I'm seeing, that one they're thinking is being kind of slow walked by the judge. Yeah. And the that judge is a Trump appointee. So that. Comes into it a little bit. It comes into it, but you can't automatically make that assumption. Right. And I'm not saying you are, but I mean, we've seen other Trump appointees who have said, eh, "Nope," you know, who have ruled against him and his legal team on various things. So, when you have, when you're confirmed by the Senate, you've got a lifetime appointment, so you don't have to listen to the person who appointed you ever again. That's that's how I got here. I, I was appointed and approved by the U.S. Senate to chair yes. this program. Um, do you think the Supreme Court? wants these cases to come to it and if if not because i've heard some people argue that they really kind of these are are you know such sticky no win sorts of things they don't want them um i'm just kind of like well why are you there i mean why did you go through all the trouble to get there because i would think i would want if i you know if i were to become president if i were to become a supreme court person it's like yes you want to be the person in the room who has a who's able to take momentous decisions well, I think they're all gun shy after Bush v. Gore. And whatever you think of that, that was a major, um, a major shift yeah. from what they might normally do. Now, we've had 24 years since then. I think it's important you always need to remember that even though they're confirmed and they have a lifetime appointment, judges are politicians too. And they see what's going on in the country they see the potential for what they write in their rulings and for what they say to cause unrest and, and, and have a major impact um, on people either side. So I think they would rather not, especially on things where let the voters decide. Now, in this case, they may have no choice but to weigh in because you could argue, well, um, it might be in the voters' interest to have a resolution on this before the election, mm-hmm. and you are putting your thumb on the scale for one side or the other if you do not intervene in this case. So I think they probably did not want to do it, but they had to do it, and I don't know which way they would go, but I would predict in this ruling it will be as measured as can be. Um. 
Okay, so let's. You you mentioned Ronald McDonald. Ronald McDonald. That's not. <laughs> didn't even try to do that. Yeah. Ronna McDaniel. Don't call her Ronna. Romney. Romney McDaniel. Um, but she is leaving her post as chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, reportedly under pressure from the Trump camp. Um, and uh, I guess there are two people who are going to replace her. One of whom just happens to be named Laura Trump. Um, and Laura Trump, in fact, was quoted saying something you, you alluded to earlier, which was, I think the Republican voters probably would have no trouble uh, paying for his legal bills. And I think she's completely correct. I don't think they would mind. I mean, they buy his shoes. Why would they not, you know, pay for his, you know, fine by the uh, you know evil deep state? Um, but let's talk about what's going on at the Republican because this is kind of I mean, you've talked about the the parties that have been taken the state parties organizations that have been taken over by uh, the Trump wing, um, but this is like kind of the final total takeover because he's really putting his own people in there to run it. That's right. And they give you kind of a, um, a 30,000 foot view of who are the people on the Republican National Committee? Who are the people electing the new chairman? So every state has three votes on the Republican National Committee. So the state chair is automatically a member of the RNC. And then each state elects a Republican National Committee man and woman. So the party delegates who are now more, in many states more Trump-oriented, they're the ones that elect the Republican National Committee man and woman. So in California, right, it's Harmeet Dillon, who you may know from San Francisco politics as a Republican National Committee woman. She's been at the club. And then um, Sean Steele, who is the husband of Congresswoman Michelle Steele from Southern California, and he's a former state party chairman. He's the Republican National Committee man. So that's the audience of who will be electing these people. It's about 160-odd people. And so uh, I would say on Rana first, it's a very destabilizing thing to do this right in the middle of the election cycle because the role of the party chairman, there are two main tasks. So number one is raise money, and number two is win the election. And a lot of the, you know, you see the presidential candidates have their campaigns and they have their machinery, but a lot of the infrastructure for the elections, the call centers and the volunteer organization and, and all of that, a lot of that, the, the um, databases, right, of the voters and all of that, a lot of that is organized and paid for by the Republican National Party and the Democrat National Party. So that you have a functioning state and national party is very important in the presidential election. Now, as for, you know, the who might be taking over. So the chair would be the current chair of the North Carolina Republican Party and the co-chair, you know, is proposed to be Laura Trump. Now, that's who Donald Trump is supporting the del the the national committee still has to elect them, and there's still a little debate of did Rana actually formally resign, or if so, when is she resigning? Th there was all the talk of that, right? But she's kind of pulled back a little bit, you know. Talk of I'm still here, right? So I maybe she's trying to not be embarrassed on her way out the door. I don't know. Now I'm biased because I worked for the man for many years, but I feel like well. If you want to have a Republican national chairman who is the best fundraiser you could ever imagine, and 
his skill is knowing every district and knowing every candidate in every district and being a pretty legendary political strategist. Well, there's a guy who used to be the Speaker of the House who's out of a job right now who might be a good choice to be the RNC chairman. Massive fundraiser. Massive fundraiser. So it remains to be seen. These folks, will they do a good job? Will they, you know, you're talking about having to raise upwards of a billion dollars. Yeah. Now, the the legal bills. I think you're 100% right about voters not caring, but I bet you the donors will care. And I think there's going to be a real issue with some of the donors to make sure because both parties take a lot of corporate money. Both parties have a lot of rich people who are CEOs or captains of industry will give millions and millions of dollars. And you might have some of those folks saying, I'm not going to give you those millions unless you guarantee to me that that money isn't going to the legal bills. Or they might say, I'm going to fund the campaign to take back the majority in the Senate and not fund the Republican National Committee. So I think there's going to be more of a donor issue than a voter issue on that. I'm going to say something that you're all probably going to think is just stupid, but I have to say it. And and it's more just, now are the DNC chair and the RNC chair, are their duties largely the same? I believe the DNC chair might be a little more of a formal full-time job. They might be paid even. Uh, But largely, yes, right? They go on the Sunday shows. They rev up the troops. They raise the money. They, you know oversee the party machinery, right? They they plan the national conventions. Right. Right. Well, and, and that wasn't the dumb thing. This is the dumb thing I'm, I'm saying, I'm going to say, which is that when I think back of certain names who have led the RNC and certain names who have led the DNC, I mean, other than Howard Dean, I can't remember any of them, but from the RNC, we've all heard the names of Haley Barber and Lee Atwater and Michael Steele and Reince Priebus and Ken Mailman. You know, whether you like them or like the party or not, they seem to either be much better at self-promotion or there's something about that party that puts that position out there more because they just, again, this might just be my impression from from what I followed in the news. But that, of course, is why we asked you to turn off your phones at the beginning of the program. Um, Anything to that or am I just, is that just a quixotic comment of mine? Well, I think that charisma how you carry yourself? Do you have a good persona? Are you personable? Do you have a stage presence, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. And so, um, uh, you know, I think most of the, you're right, most of the Republican national chairman, the incumbent accepted, you know, have been great interviews, have been, you know, really successful going into it and have parlayed themselves into a very successful career Afterward, maybe not Reince Priebus as much with the his stint as White House chief of staff, but the post chief of staff, he's doing very successful in kind of the, you know, the the K Street world of of Washington. So, yeah, I mean, that that that's something of it of you need to have an effective party leader making the case for your candidates and your issues. And there are some things where you as the candidate don't want to be involved in. And it's the party leader who is the person who stands up and eats that not-so-well-flavored sandwich. It's the G-rated program tonight, folks. Yes.
Um, okay. Well, actually, so before we get to Biden, a couple of questions from the audience about Nikki Haley. And uh, we were talking about, you know, why she's staying in. And someone says, there, another option, of course, is that they're in in case the front runner stumbles, mm-hmm. is convicted on on, a, on something. Um, and what do you think of that as, as a possibility for her? Well, one of the issues with that, of course, is we're a bit in uncharted territory, right? If we, I mean, it's been, can't remember the last time we've had any party's nomination go past the first ballot. Um, but um, you still have to have your people elected as delegate to vote for you. And so even if, say, Donald Trump had to withdraw for whatever reason and the convention chose the candidate, well, those delegates are still Trump loyalists. And so what he says about it would go a long way to influencing their decision. So might she do better in that environment? Sure. But the people who are actually casting the votes are not going to be her people. Good question and good answer. Um, someone who clearly is not a Republican says, should we register as a Republican for a day to vote for Nikki Haley? There has been Democratic support for Haley, um, both, I think, tactically, as well as some possible actual enthusiasm for her as a candidate. And that's a very good question, especially um, a point about California. So we have the top two primary in California, and the parties treat it differently. So if you're a Democrat or a Libertarian or I believe a Green, you're allowed to pull a Democratic ballot. Um, you know, you don't have to re-register. But Republicans, you have to re-register as a Republican for your vote to count in the top two. That's because there are so many Republicans in the state that they're yes. worried that there might be too many. Why have too many, right? <laughs> it's expensive to rent a big room, you know? It's cheaper to get a smaller room. Very good. Um, well, let's talk about President Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden got very angry recently with the special counsel's uh, report and, of course, the the insinuation, the statement that uh, he was having memory issues. What do you think of this? Do you What impact do you think it might have longer term for the race or just is it a, a blip in the news right now? Well, as Joe Biden might say, how the hell dare you bring that up? Uh, you know, that looking at it from a communications hat, yeah. that press conference that day was of titanic proportions because, you know, they're very sensitive to it. But there is real doubt among a huge number of voters about his age and ability. And they have not found a strategy or anything convincingly to assure people that that is not a worry. And that press conference, as you saw, every doubt, every weakness was on full display in that press conference. The how the hell dare you moment with the reporter, the, um, you know, Joe Biden is Mr. Catholic, but he couldn't remember the name of the church that he had the rosary beads from with his son, Uh, the Mexico confusing with Egypt. I, I confuse those all the time. Yes, they're one and the same, right? Um, the um, you know the the, the just the um, the anger, and then you saw the and you never want this when you're giving a press conference. The the reporters turn into a 
They were shouting questions one at the other after him. And now, does he have the opportunity to turn that around? And what can you do to build a a better case and and, and work through that? It's going to be very tough because, um, you know, the State of the Union, which is coming up in a few weeks, that's an obvious platform where he can try to turn things around and show, you know, through his speech that he is up for it. But as we know, um, it's so hard for Joe Biden giving those big speeches. And in fact, when you notice it, and I've noticed this too in a in a State of the Union or a big press conference, right? You'll see him and he sometimes seems like he's scowling, right? Or he, he looks angry. Well, he's not scowling or looking angry. He is putting every ounce of himself into the presentation to deliver a clean speech, to not have any mistakes. And so if you're relying on really something that isn't his strongest suit to be something that turns things around or is a a catalyst to change the discussion, boy, that's a real challenge for his team. So, you know, does he have some points on should you have made that point in in the report? Yeah, that's a real valid point to make. But I would almost argue, one, should the president be the one making these? Should his attorneys and his surrogates be the one to make Hasn't that been a weakness of this White House for a long, the whole time, not having the their their in-house James Carville, not having their attack dogs? Right. I mean, every president has had them, the Rahm Emanuels, someone who will go out there and with or without fancy swearing um, – We'll make the case that, you know, we'll, we'll get in that, that political street fight, not an actual fight, but the political street fight in, in, in uh, defense of their boss. And he's and, and who is there he to doesn't say, have it. No and, one's doing it. Who is there to say stop? You know, we know this is your instinct to go out and fight, Mr. President. But is that the best foot forward? Does that help us win this debate and put us on the path going forward? And so it it makes me question the communications team. It makes me question, you know, the larger swath of of advisors around him. But you're right. We we seem to be missing the Lanny Davis, the Bob Bennett, the smart person who, you know, it's in this case advantageous if they're an attorney that can go on every show and argue the point and can go on and do the media interviews and can take on the critics um, to their face. And so that, to me, is a glaring communications really overall has been a a struggle for this administration. And I think you really saw that that weakness on display there. And and what happened after that? It ignited all, all the chatter and all the stories, even from some Democrats about should we be nominating Joe Biden again? Is this a great idea? Should he be thinking about stepping down? Now, the train's out of that station. You know, nothing's, you know, barring, you know, something terrible. Nothing's going to change there. But, boy, those that that is the worst outcome they could have hoped exactly for from they this whole thing. Have, yeah. It's exactly what they didn't want. Okay. Let's talk about one other negative for him, and then I want to talk about something I think is going to be a strength for him. The negative is... The far left uh, part of his party, and in particular, younger voters who are saying they're very upset with him because they disagree with his Israel policy. Um, do you think, and we have a question from the audience that's kind of on this too, has he lost those voters? Are they going to sit uh, out the election? Or the, uh, 
they likely to vote for Trump? I mean, what what do you think? Or will they eventually rally around when they realize again, okay, yeah, I just can't stomach Trump. How big of a threat to his reelection is the alienation of the uh, particularly younger voters? Well, as we've seen in the last two elections, right, the election is decided in three or four key states with a few hundred thousand votes. Well, if you lose three or four percent of the vote in Michigan, which that three or four percent of the vote in Michigan is this demographic right here, that might lose you the election. And it also might lose you a key U.S. Senate seat as well. And what what is a key Democratic voting bloc in Michigan? Arab Americans. Arab Americans. And so they might vote for Cornell West. So that is um, that's a real challenge. Now, Cornell West might not light the world on fire nationally, but he might get a higher than normal percentage in Michigan. Um, the college student right at University of Wisconsin or University of Michigan, right? They're going to be in that four percent of they're not enthusiastic about Biden. They probably think he's too old. And yeah, they might disagree with him on his Middle East policy. And that might be enough for them to maybe they sit on their hands or maybe they vote for a Cornell West or, you know, an al- one of the alternative candidates. So, yeah, I think it's a real serious problem. And if you just have that little bit around the margin in states like that, that's the whole election. I remember when. So you might remember the election that Wisconsin had for its uh, Supreme Court seat. This was a seat that flipped the court from conservative to liberal. And uh, the winning candidate, I mean, just cleaned up. She won big across the state, but she cleaned up on college campuses where she's getting like in the 90 percentiles of the vote. Um, and so, yeah, that's 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 a key number to watch, I guess, and, and see where that sentiment, if it changes or hardens over right. the course of the next. And that too, it's their theory of the race, right? When we get into the binary choice of your only choice is Trump v. Biden, they're betting that warts and all, college students and other folks who are might be not as enthusiastic about the president, well, they're still going to vote for the president and turn out because they don't want Donald Trump as president. And right now, as we're seeing in the polls, that's not the case. Now, we have an eternity. We have multiple eternities from now until Election Day. But right now, that strategy is not working if you believe the polls. Yeah. Um, OK, so I said there was a good thing. At least I, I'll make the case that the economy, which we now know is strong, it's strong corporate profits. Unemployment is, is very low. Uh, individual, you know, personal wages are going up. Um, inflation is tamped down and such. For a long time, even though there were good underlying numbers, it was not reflected in consumer confidence. It was not reflected in kind of voter uh, feelings about the economy. Um, that's now starting to change in, in, in some polls. And there's always the kind of that laggard number. And, the, and I've seen, in, and I don't remember what month it is, but I've seen people in the past kind of talk about, yeah, by such and such month before the election, if the people are convinced at that point that the economy is still bad, it's over for the incumbent. On the other hand, if the trends are are carrying them, you know, upward, they've they've got a really good thing. So, do you agree the economy might just save his bacon? Well, I think it goes back to: Are you communicating that effectively? Yeah. Do people real a do people realize that things are getting better? Do they feel it? 
Do they see it when they go to the grocery store? Do they see it when they buy a new car? Do they see it when they want to get a home loan? Mm-hmm. So there's that. Is it, it does it, you know, we have lots of numbers, right? And we can make a case, you know, with data on a lot of things. But the data, you know, may not be what you're feeling and what you're seeing in your daily life. Um, the other thing is, can you effectively communicate that to people and make the leap that Joe Biden's policies are the reason why things are getting better? Historically, when the economy is better and things are improve, improving, the incumbent gets the credit. We'll see. But that is probably one of the only sort of bright lights for them that this is something that they can build on, um, you know, potentially going forward. Another thing and I, uh, on our last point about, you know, what are college, are college students going to be enthusiastic? Mm-hmm. We saw earlier this week the president doing the loan forgiveness. And, you know, they're, they're probably betting that something like that is going to help them with maybe unenthusiastic college students. But that's also another thing for the he's been good for your pocketbook. I'm saving all this money because of President Biden paying back my loan. Now, who is benefiting is another question. Well, I was. Yeah, I mean, the argument on that has always been, oh, great. So that that plumber who, you know, has has a good job, but is in debt with, you know, with their one person plumbing business and they're not getting that, you know, written off. They're not um, people's homes. Our mortgages are not being written off. Or I worked hard and paid off my loan. Where's my? Well, which is now <laughs> that you're paying off their student. Loan. Yeah. Um, and I, please, please don't think I'm against students. Um, Send your cards and letters to John Zipper, care of the Commonwealth. Hey, I've been approved by the Senate, so I can't yes. lose this kid. <laughs> well, let, let's let's talk about so uh, Matt Shoup, who is a Republican uh, public relations person, and he's working with a Steve Garvey for Senate campaign. His office released uh, results of a survey commissioned by our study survey uh, poll. Uh, commissioned by this Garvey campaign, but showing that Garvey was a pretty close second to Adam Schiff in the U.S. Senate race. How much weight do you put in that? Is that uh... well? Um, it's an interesting race, certainly. It might be the most interesting race you're not paying much attention to, as well. Um, I would say, yeah, he probably is in second. We've seen a public poll that came out this week that showed. Um, Schiff is at 28, Garvey's at about 22, um, Porter's at about 16, 15, 16, and Lee is at about nine. So, yeah, there probably is something to that. Now, I would say uh, it is not due to anything that the Garvey campaign is doing that they got to second place because it's due to what is it's a strategy that we've seen time and time again and. When you have $35 million in the bank, you can put it to use is, you know, Adam Schiff has the most name ID. He has the most favorabilities of the Democratic candidates, and he has the most money to promote himself. And I think most people would agree he's going to be one of the top two. So the question is, okay, who do you want to face? And when you have $35 million, you can almost pick your opponent. Well, if Steve Garvey gets to the top two, he can measure the drapes and start uh, looking for a better house in Washington, D.C. And so 
my mailbox yeah. has been flooded with Steve Garvey is Mr. Conservative. He's a Trump voter. He did this. He did that. And now I work in politics, so I see it. But if you're a regular person in Bakersfield or Fresno and you get this mailing, you don't see a you see, oh, my God, I don't want anything to do with Adam Schiff. But then you see, oh, that's our guy. That's Mr. Conservative. I'm going to vote for him. And, um, you know, it has worked. And you're saying those messages would are originating or are being funded by or whatever by possibly the Adam Schiff. It's by the Newsom uh, reelection. Yeah, it's by the Schiff campaign and their super PAC. And so they have an active strategy appealing to Republican voters. Now, Garvey hasn't raised a lot of money. He doesn't have a particularly strong campaign team or, you know, strategy behind him. So really, and if you watched the debate the other night, and I watched so you didn't have to. (laughs) Oh, did he show up on this one? He showed up. It was the four main candidates. He's not exactly a compelling public speaker either. And so um, if all you know about the race is Steve Garvey and he's a Republican and maybe there's some vague remembrance of he played for the Dodgers, that's enough. And there are other Republican candidates in the race, but nobody knows who they are. Now, interestingly, Katie Porter, who has a decent amount of money, but not nearly as much as Adam Schiff, she's now starting to run a campaign promoting Eric Early, who is another Republican candidate, and she's putting out digital ads. Eric Early is a MAGA extremist because she's trying to divide the vote among Republicans. So the number one campaign donors to the Republican part campaigns, by the way, are apparently the Democratic campaigns. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. So regardless of who you're voting for, whether you like Katie Porter or Steve Garvey, I do have to give the best line to Katie Porter in the first debate where she was going after Garvey because he was waffling on something. And she said, Steve Garvey, once a Dodger, always a Dodger. Yes. Yes. Quite good. Quite good. Well, let, let's talk more uh, local politics. There are a number of interesting races going on. Uh, obviously, there's quite a bit going on here in San Francisco. But let's start up in your neck of the woods in Sacramento. They also have a mayoral race. Daryl Steinberg, the incumbent mayor, is not running? He's not running for re-election. Okay. What are you looking at there? What, who's, who are the likely candidates? Or, and who do you think has the inside track? Oh. So Daryl Steinberg, you may remember him. He was the former president of the state Senate. He's been mayor of Sacramento for the last eight years. It's rumored he might want to be the next attorney general of California. So you might get to know him a little better. He's leaving the mayorship. And so we don't have ranked voting in Sacramento. So we have the March 5th and then the top two will go to a runoff in November. So there are four main candidates. And it's an interesting test. You know, for those of you who maybe haven't spent a lot of time in in Sacramento, I would say as a whole, Sacramento for a bigger city is probably a more overall, a more center centrist city, the types of of mayors we elect are really more kind of more mainstream Democrats. Um, You know, we we, we typically don't go for a more progressive Democrat. Um, And so you have a real contrast of of the last few years we've seen on the city council. We've had a little progressive block get elected. There's a gal named Katie Valenzuela who 
won the downtown city council seat, and she basically would be Sacramento's answer to AOC. And so there's a real barn burner now for the mayorship, and it's kind of that fight mm-hmm. at a local level. So you have um, Steve Hansen, who is in a six degrees of separation moment. He is the candidate who Katie Valenzuela beat in the last election for city council. He was the two-term incumbent representing the downtown area for city council. And I would say he is probably the most centrist of the candidates. He's the candidate backed by the business community. He is running on kind of a, a, you know, a concern about crime and homelessness and getting results. He's also a major leader in the LGBT community. So, you know, there's a lot that he brings to the table. Mm -hmm. And there is not an obvious Republican candidate in the race. So he would probably appeal to the more centrist and center-right voters in Sacramento. Then you have Assemblyman Kevin McCarty, who's... um, uh, You're saying McCarthy. McCarthy, not McCarthy. They do get confused a lot with one another. Um, They, uh, only by their names, not their voting (laughs) records. He is, you know, a pretty progressive leader in the state assembly. He was on the city council before. So he would probably be the leading, if you would say, kind of establishment progressive candidate. Uh, He's also, I believe, raised the most money by far of any of the candidates. Then you have state senator, former state senator Richard Pan, who was just termed out of the Senate. He, I would say, is a pretty center, center left candidate. He's a doctor. He uh, was very involved, all the legislation on vaccines over the years. He was the main proponent of that, and that kind of cuts both ways, winning him fans and critics. Um, And then there's a fourth candidate, Flo Kofer, and she is kind of the AOC candidate for the mayor's race. She's a newcomer to politics. She is some sort of a doctor. I don't remember what her, her field is. And so it's an interesting four, I wouldn't say it's a four-way race. The only polling I've seen early on showed Richard Pan was in first place, and then McCarty and Hansen were fighting out for second place. So it's an example, though, of who makes the top two could make for a very fascinating November election. And it has real implications for, you know, you may not realize it, but Sacramento's problems really are very comparable to San Francisco's problems. Our crime problems are uh, really equivalent. Homelessness, we actually have higher rate of homelessness in Sacramento Seriously? than, than uh, San Francisco. Well, let's take and the a moment to appreciate that. Yes. We're not number one. You are not number one. Oh, okay. Continue. Uh, Proceed, Governor. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, on the point in time, which is the way you do the census for uh, for uh, homeless folks. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of at a crossroads at a city where you've had, you know, several years of kind of pro-business Democrats leading the city. And so it's a real question is, will we continue that trend? Um, you know, will Republicans be the key to get a Hanson into the top two? Uh, so that to me is a fascinating race to watch. Yeah. Interesting. So, you mentioned kind of some of the similar problems. San Francisco seems to be have passed that moment of peak progressive in, in the sense of all, almost all of the candidates that we're talking about from mayor here are either considered to be moderates or 
maybe weren't traditionally considered to be a moderate, but are running on very moderate platforms. Obviously, I'm, I'm alluding to London Breed. I'm not. She's often kind of included as being moderate or moderate uh, adjacent. I'm not really sure, but she has come out with some very tough on uh, you know proposals and propositions and and uh, uh, statements and such about how she wants to deal with the fentanyl crisis and crime and homelessness in the city. Um, and what do you think? Do, do you think? Do you think that might help? Uh, is it too much, too late? Um, does she? kind of have the momentum of being a, a, the incumbent anyway, or just what do you think the dynamics are for her candidacy in this race? Well, you know, looking at it and looking at it from an outsider, you would think, well, she should be at least in somewhat of a strong position going into this election. Um, you can debate whether she has delivered, but she appears to be at least rhetorically responding to the challenges ahead of her and in a way that seems to be, you know, most people would agree that's kind of the right path to go forward. But a lot of the things she's talking about, the, the platform crime or retail theft or housing and homelessness, while they may be the right policy route to go, a lot of them are long-term solutions. They're easier said than done to enact, you know, that you might have to rely on the board of supervisors to enact them or voters to enact them or rely on legal rulings for them to go through. And so you're at a point now where voters have lived through these problems for way too long. They're growing increasingly frustrated, even though the mayor may be on the right track. We're not seeing results and what you saw in the Chronicle poll today, I think, bears that out. Um, there's new polling on the mayor's race. And the key number to start with is the mayor, according to the poll, has a 71 percent disapproval rating. And they polled the ranked choice. And in the first choice, former Supervisor Farrell is ahead of the mayor with 20 percent of the vote. The mayor is second with 18 percent. Then you have Mr. Lurie is third at 16 percent. And then the supervisor, I believe it's Asha, if I'm pronouncing this correctly, Asha Safai, he's at 8 percent. So I think it goes to that point that's very interesting is the three major leading contenders are kind of more moderate on the more moderate centrist side of things. So I would argue voters seem to be kind of looking for that. They may just not be satisfied that the mayor can deliver on that kind of results or change they're looking for. They also asked, you know, what's your second choice and who is your last choice? The mayor is last among people's second choice. And by far, she's first as far as who is your last choice of the candidates to vote. So that does not bode well at all for for her you know, making it through the election. Now, there's a long way to go. And tomorrow night, she'll have a great platform. Tomorrow at noon, she'll be at the clubs. And she'll, if you know anything about London Breed, she will say what, you know, she's a fighter. She'll, it'll be interesting. So, um, yeah, that, that's it. But I, I'll admit to being surprised. Not that she wouldn't be having a tough uh, re-election campaign because, People are, are upset about the city, kind of almost across the board politically. 
Um, but I really kind of thought that, oh, I was thinking with ranked choice voting that she would probably be in that second spot. People would kind of think, okay, maybe I want XYZ here, but if I don't get that, then, you know, she's the person I know. So we'll go for second. So, but that kind of suggests there's deep set, yeah. you know, dissatisfaction. And remember, that's how she won the mayorship. Everybody thought Mark Leno was going to win the mayorship. Yeah. She beat Mark Leno thanks to ranked choice voting. Okay. From out of left field, someone asks, will there be a government shutdown in March? Well, uh, it's what, February 22nd. I don't think we've had any real serious discussions about uh, are we going to have a continuing resolution or some sort of long-term budget solution. It's in no one's political interest to have a government shutdown. I think... It's kind of surprising we actually got this um, continuing resolution to get us through the March period. But, you know, I think uh, if you read the tea leaves, there's a lot of buyer's remorse, I think, in Speaker Johnson. And he certainly sold himself right as, well, I can do it differently and we can bring it together. And we're well, in his defense, God told him to, to go for the. Yes, yes. But he, God did not give him a balanced budget path <laughs> forward, though. Right. So um, I don't see anywhere where they're going to come together in any way. And there is a little bit of a school of thought of if you do not have a, uh, you know, uh, if you have a government shutdown, uh, one of the provisions and one of the prior spending bills that was enacted was if you don't reach a deal by a certain date, there's an automatic 1% across the board spending cut that kicks in. So I think that might be a little bit at play here of, well, we're probably not going to negotiate a good deal, but if we kind of sit on our hands and do nothing, well, that would kick in and that's better than nothing. So it's a bad strategy. And with the, um, with the challenges around the world, it's it's an even bigger, um, you know, more troubling strategy. Um, the thing, too, I would say is it is not a helpful thing to present as part of your record to voters. But as we've seen in the past few years, when shutdowns have become kind of a normal part of our budgeting, I don't believe one congressman or woman has lost their seats because we had a government shutdown. So until somebody loses their seat, uh, I think folks are going to do it. And, you know, there's not going to be there's no consequence really to come from it. And until there is this kind of brinksmanship is continue, unfortunately, going to continue to be a norm. Okay. exit question before we go to the news quiz. Uh, The what do you make of the rejection of the immigration, their immigration? Uh, bill, really, uh, by the House GOP? Well, I think, first of all, to think that an issue that's eluded us for literally decades, to think in an election year with global crises, with uh, a budget crisis, to think that you're going to get in a narrowly divided Washington some deal that everybody would embrace, that was, well, I'll be nice and say that was overly ambitious. Um, you know, um, 
it has been described, right, as this was the most conservative immigration bill to emerge yeah. in, in recent memory. That can be true, and people can still have quibbles with that, and that's fair. So do the House Republicans have dirt on their hands? And obviously their play is we want to use it as a political issue in the campaign. Of course, it's cynical politics at its worst, right? But I would argue the Democrats didn't want that bill to pass either. Because if you saw during the debate, right, Senator Padilla was a vociferous opponent of the bill. And in that Senate debate that I watched so you didn't have to, Conan Nolan, the great journalist for NBC in Los Angeles, he polled the group and he asked, show of hands, who would have voted for that bill if you were in the Senate? Not one of the candidates, Democrat or Republican, said they would have voted for that bill. So, you know, one of the things I always like to think, maybe it's my, you know, I'm channeling the West Wing when I'm thinking of this. <laughs> my former professor at USC, Chet Newland, is one of the fathers of the field of public administration, worked for President Lyndon Johnson. His one thing that stuck with me was politics is the eternal search for reasonableness and human dignity. And as you can tell, we don't do a good fit on either of those fronts in Washington, D.C. You know, our leaders are not looking for a reasonable, realistic solution. They're looking to score points on the other side. And that's kind of what the immigration bill got caught up with. Whether next year or in the future we're going to get anywhere closer, uh, I would be very pessimistic of that. And remember, never forget, we had this a decade ago where you had, remember, the Gang of Eight, and they were going to pass a more liberal immigration bill. And Barack Obama killed that bill because he viewed it as not good politics for him to have that bill go through. So it's a it's an unfortunate thing that something that cities and all of us are seeing real consequences from. We don't have leaders of either side embracing that search for reasonableness. Well, thank you very much, Tim and I. Uh, have a great weekend. Stay informed and involved, and we'll see you again. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.